Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly Wednesday live stream, where we interview labor leaders about current labor issues. On our March 24th, 2021 program, we discuss women's labor history with the Machinist Union and an author on the history of Long Island migrant labor camps. Our guests included Dora Cervantes, General Secretary Treasurer of the Machinist Union, and Mark Torres, author, Teamster, and labor lawyer. This week's hosts are Tanya Hutchins of Activate Live and the Machinist Union, and Andrea Arenas of El Desvio and Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. My name is Evan Papp, and I co-produce the Wednesday weekly live stream with Chris Garlock. Here is an extended excerpt from the show. Welcome, everyone. I'm Tanya Hutchins. I'm a member of the Machinist Union and SAG-AFTRA. By day, I work at the Machinist Union as a communications representative. And my co-host this evening is Andrea Arenas. Thank you, Tanya. And uh, I am the Communications and Policy Director at the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. And we'd like to give uh, a shout out to the Coalition of Labor Women, CLUE who uh, they're celebrating their 74th anniversary today. So congratulations. And Clue is celebrating with a performance of the play, We Were There, which tells the stories of women and labor leaders over the years. And it's a multimedia women's labor history project. And guess what? Our own Tanya Hutchins plays the part of Lucy Parsons. Yes, that's right. Lucy was born in Texas but she was forced to move to Chicago with her husband because interracial marriage was outlawed. So she organized sewing workers and was a founding member of the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world. But her heartbreaking moment came during and after the Haymarket Square demonstration. So we don't wanna give everything away, but listen to the play to hear Lucy Parsons' story and many more. The play was written by singer-songwriter Bev Grant. So definitely check it out. So. It's Women's History Month, and that is why today we are talking about the role that women play in the labor movement. So an interesting uh, fact is that according to the Economic Policy Institute, women make up nearly half of union membership, yet they still not necessarily represent um, half of union leadership. Nonetheless, there are women in leadership within our nation's most prominent unions, and it's very exciting to see that every time, every year, there's more and more women in leaderships and within the unions. Tanya. That's right, and we are very proud of the women in our leadership positions at the Machinist Union. Today, we are joined by Dora Cervantes, Machinist Union General Secretary Treasurer, which is the second highest leadership position in the IAM, the International Association of Machinists, but I just call it the Machinist Union. Dora is the first woman in this position and the first Latina. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dora, and sharing your story with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me and good day to all the listeners. We want to hear your union story. So we're going to go back to the beginning. So let's go all the way back to your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was it like as a young girl in your hometown? Because I, I want to hear about how you first heard about unions. So I grew up in Houston, Texas. My parents are immigrants. My grandfather started off in the railroads. My grandfather was a proud member of uh, Brotherhood and Maintenance Way. And my father followed in his footsteps. 
So early on, I was uh, taken to the railroad yard when they used to have the employee picnics and the safety days. And I was really just, you know, overwhelmed. And, you know, I liked all those big locomotives and I was able to go into like the machine shops and see how they would operate on these cars. And I was fascinated by the big locomotives. And, you know, I grew up with five brothers. So, you know, I was surrounded by brothers. Uh, my two younger sisters came later in life, but I was fascinated and I wanted to work for the railroad. So when I was 18, you know, little, yeah, 18, 20 years old, I started to look at to Union Pacific and I applied at Union Pacific to get a, get a job there at the railroad yard. And, you know, under the recommendation of my father, I believe at that point, they only had two women that actually worked on the yard and they were like, (laughs) well, I didn't get hired because they didn't hire women at that point. Not at, not at least at the machine shops. So I ended up going to apply at Southwest airlines and got, got hired there. Another big jets. And that fascinated me, but for my father, my father, my grandfather, and every everybody in my family carries their union card proudly. So you were destined to be with the machinists then because we yes. were founded as a railroad union in 1888 and you were trying to get in there. In I the was car. trying, yes. Right. So it was your destiny that you ended up with us. So yes, we're so glad to have you. Now I've heard you tell so many stories, inspiring stories, but one of them that I think shows just how hard you've worked over your career is, you know, you ended up becoming an organizer. So from the point where you started at Southwest Airlines, take us to that point where you were organizing because you said that at one point you were pregnant and you were still out there organizing. Correct, correct. So I became a machinist in 1989 and, you know, I was pregnant in 1990. I had my son And I got involved with the machinist union right away. We were under uh, contract negotiations and knowing a little bit about the unions, I knew that whatever decisions were being made or negotiated was going to impact my livelihood. So I became involved and, you know, being very outspoken. and, And so they kind of reached out to me and asked if I wanted to help. And I said, absolutely. And having knowledge of the airports, I was tasked with getting the picketing permits or the soliciting permits so that we can stand out there. And we were trying to organize baggage handlers for a uh, major airline. So I would stand out there in the 110 degrees out in Houston with my little belly hanging out. And I would, you know, get everybody to sign cards and yes, trying to get them organized because I know that only through a collective bargaining agreement are you going to be treated fairly, especially as women, you know, since we're always underpaid and only through a union contract can wages be negotiated without a gender specific, you know, so it was very important for me. And yes, through both of my, both of my pregnancies, I was out organizing and during the summer, I dragged my kids down there with me and they helped out pass leaflets and talk the union talk because they, they've they heard it for so long. That must have been inspiring to other women out there that you were trying to organize because they saw you, one, either when you were pregnant organizing, but bringing your kids. So what kind of reaction did you get? You know, I always say people were sympathetic, but it, it stopped people. And so it did get attention, especially from the female workers, 
And I think Andrea said it earlier that we have 50% of women are union members and it, it got their attention. It really did get their attention. And I had more women sign up than the male counterparts, but it was good. We'd like you to explain to us what is language pay and what, why it is so important, especially for you as a Latina and for so many other bilingual people and workers. So I, I went to work for Southwest in 1989 and we, because I'm bilingual and fluent in, in Spanish, when we had Spanish callers that would call the, the reservation line, they would transfer them and some of us would volunteer to take those calls. And as I moved through the rank and file into a leadership position and had the opportunity to negotiate one of the Southwest agreements, my first goal was to get bilingual pay, to get, you know, speaker pay. And, you know, I went to the company while we were in negotiations and basically said, we're providing a service for you. And, you know, it's a talent and it's a skill that we have and we need to be compensated for it. And it's negotiated in the contract that anyone who took or spoke Spanish gets a dollar differential. You get a dollar extra an hour for taking those Spanish. And it, it makes me proud because here again, we were able to get something, you know, in return for a service that we provide. And in the airline industry, those that are represented and have contracts, there is speaker pay and there is compensation for, for that skill and that talent. You can't fix things if you don't tell somebody and things can't get fixed unless you make it known. And while I was, while I was a worker at Southwest, you know, I could hear my, some of the people talk about what they wanted to see change and what they wanted to do. And believe it or not, I almost memorized that whole contract book. Even to this day, I could say, turn to page 20. It's on the right-hand side. Second paragraph states this, but I would make note of the changes that we wanted. And, um, probably one of the easiest companies that I had to deal with negotiations. And, you know, my thing is, if you're, if you're afraid to stand up then you'll fall for anything. So I don't think it was so much fear. It was more of a challenge, you know, let's negotiate this or let's see, you know, how well we can do, or let's ask for it. The worst they can tell us is no. And then we'll just keep hammering them down until we get it or, you know, come to a easy medium. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Dora. That was Dora Cervantes. She is the Machinist Union General Secretary Treasurer. So we really appreciate her time. So Tanya, we have an amazing um, guest now. We are joined by Mark Torres, author of the book, Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood. And congratulations so much, Mark. Um, your book just launched, and uh, we'd love to know more about this book and, and what made you write it. Sure. And thank you for having me, uh, Tanya and Dre. It's exciting to be here. And, and just by way of introduction, I am a general counsel of Teamsters Local 810 here in New York City, or just, just outside of New York City in Long Island City. And I've been, been in that role for about 12 years, but I've been a member of Teamsters for about 30 years. So I'm true and true labor. And, and, and that's what I look for in my stories. I'm also an author. I've written, this is now my fourth book, my first nonfiction historical book. And sure enough, it's about labor. It's about history. And it's, it's perfectly within my, within my interests and desire to have written this book. And I'm really excited about it. 
Can you take us back, perhaps? What was it like, based on your research, for families, for migrant children, and yeah. speaking of the most vulnerable, right, and even women and children? Absolutely. And, and, and really, the, the, the true kind of shocker of this is that all of this occurred 90 miles outside of New York City. And, you know, you always hear of the migrant camps in the West Coast, the Midwest, but never have you heard it from the East End of Long Island. In fact, this is the first book to cover that, this story. And that's, and the, the more I learned of the story, the more my obligation grew to tell it. Heartbreak, mistreatment, chronic economic and physical exploitation, human suffering. And it's another sad example where industry was more important than human life. And the, again, the more I researched and the, the information I found what was and is quite shocking. And, and it still remains today a... Farm workers, they have no access to the National Labor Relations Act, so they can't organize, they can't join a union. Although state laws have passed and things have gotten better, and it is a far cry from the, the time I, my, my book covers, from 1943 to 2000 generally, but that mid-century period was really at its, at its peak and at its worst. <clears throat> Mark, in case there's somebody who is not in a union and not familiar with labor, or even somebody that doesn't know about these camps, tell us like how and why they were set up. Yeah. Well, it, it started in World War II. There was a, a tremendous shortage of labor. Men were, men, men were enough to fight in the war and they needed, they needed laborers. Initially, the U.S. government sponsored contracts with the islands of Jamaica and Barbados. And workers were flown in to Long Island, worked at the camps for a short while. And right after that period, they also employed workers from Mexico and Puerto Rico. And then probably towards the later part of the 50s, that work exclusively was reserved for blacks, black, black men, women, and children from the South, U.S. states. So really the name, the name of the book alone, when people think migrants, they're thinking of you know, people crossing the borders. These are all U.S. citizens or workers that were uh, under work visas. So, you know, the first, that's the first misconception I've already seen. And I'm glad to share that and explain that because that, then maybe that changes the perception a bit. Uh, of course, they had no access to any labor law protections. That Being out of state, they had no citizenship rights, no voting rights. And really they were at the whim of these labor contractors called crew chiefs or crew leaders. They would go to these states, economically depressed states in Arkansas, Alabama, Carolinas, and they would recruit these workers and bring them back to Long Island. The minute those workers stepped on the bus, they were, they were obligated to pay for the ride both to Long Island and back. And every day thereafter, they're incurring debt from everything from fuel charges to rent to, to leasing space where they're living, to food and, and, and alcohol at over, overblown prices. And all of that just kept a perpetual cycle of debt that was going on and on. At the same time, these camps over time grew to be really like slum-like conditions. M many people resorted to living in, in fact, I'll tell you in Bridgehampton in 1950, there was a fire, there was a family of, of four living in a, in, a, in a chicken coop, if you can imagine. There was a fire, the workers, the parents were out in the field, a fire and two babies burned to death. And, you know, at that point, the, the people in that community decided to start um, an organization which still lives, exists today called the Bridgehampton Community Child Care Center. And they've helped the migrant workers then and today help um, youths as well as that they've been going since 1950. You know, all of these conditions worsened over the years, chronic exploitation, many, many fires. Again, the, a lot of these these rundown facilities, some of them in Riverhead where there was no housing code. So people could really put up any structure, call it a house and live there, but yet not insulated. No running, no running water, no heat. And sure enough, they would use these kerosene stoves and heaters for heat. And that led to uh, terrible fires and terrible situations continuously. And, and really, as, I, as I, I realized when I finished the book, 
and, and now my line of work, I represent teamsters, truckers, skilled maintenance, skilled maintenance workers, different different mindsets, but never farm workers. But I could tell you now that, you know, I'm glad to have given this voice to those forgotten brothers and sisters of labor because although they were denied the opportunity to join unions, you know, it, it's a sad, a sad uh, thing they had to go through. I would love to tell you there was a humanitarian effort. There was marches like Cesar Chavez in California, but none of that happened on Long Island. The true change ultimately led from changes in agriculture, uses of machinery that led to less, less people needed. You know, those kind of changes eventually land, land values rising and increasing. All those changes really led to the ushering out of this period. But during that time, there were people who gave strong voice and advocacy to the workers. One of them, a woman, Helen Prince, who grew up and lived in South Pole, in the town of South Pole for many years. She was a teacher, the only teacher and the only school at a camp, at a migrant camp for children in New York. She, she gave noble efforts. I think of Mary Chase Stone, a woman from New England who gave up a life of luxury to, to relocate to Riverhead, live in poverty, and help these these workers, and, and not only that, fight in court in court battles on their behalf to get money back that was owed to them. And then on the flip side, I think of the, the people like Dilcia Trent, a 22 year old mother, who whose husband whose husband was a migrant worker out in the farm, and and she she you know there was a terrible fire, her three infant children they all they all perished. Myrtle Lee Grant, another worker at a at a Bridgehampton camp in Jake and the Jacobs camp in Bridgehampton. And she was mute and epileptic, and she again perished in a fire. All of these things and chronic exploitation continued. And, and just another example of the economic exploitation one woman went into Riverhead, which is the, the, the largest city that far east, and complained that they were taking out Social Security from her paycheck, and she didn't even have a Social Security card. So this is the kind of chronic things that were that were going on at the time. You know, again, the advocacy came from local reverends, you know, Mary Chase Stone, I mentioned, and others. But ultimately, it was, you know, and I wish it was a better ending, a, a, a more heroic ending. But sadly, it was due to the agricultural changes that really led to the downfall of the camps. Do you think that there are similarities to today, to, you know, guest worker programs, yes. a, a lot of things that we, we fight for, right, uh, yeah, for yes. when it comes to workers' rights? Are sure. there? Sure. Well, yes, sadly, the work farm workers now are ravished by COVID. You know, they're still exploited, discriminated, facing discrimination, you know, dealing with this, with similar treatments. You know, there hasn't been much change in that regard. So, so, and ultimately, you know, it's a time told sad fact where people, the industry value is more valuable than human life. And that continued then, that inarguably continues today. And that's why la labor and unions are so important because we intercept that at that juncture and fight for workers' rights and fight for benefits and 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 call out horrible conditions. I, I know in my own line of work, you know, obviously we deal with contract grievances and discipline grievances, but there are other times where the heat breaks down in the warehouse and the workers are cold. And, you know, look, we speak to the employer and say, we have to get OSHA involved. Right away, they go out and they get a new heater and they fix it and make it conditions that are more receptible for, for that. But without unions, you know, the workers don't have that voice and that power. Mark, just hearing all of these things, I still can't get over like the babies like dying in the fires. How does it make you feel knowing that sometimes these conditions still exist today? I mean, sometimes little things change so little. How does that make you feel? Well, I, you know, I spent 30 years in the labor movement. I'm driven unquestionably by mistreatment of workers. I, I, I will go as far as I can 
to fight on behalf of these workers. You know, I'm an attorney, but I don't see myself as an attorney. I've been called by my colleagues a, a teamster with a law degree. And that's my mantra that I, that I hold true because I believe it and I live it. I, I've been in their shoes. And when I see that kind of uh, mistreatment or, you know, poor decision-making, things that lead to really to the detriment of the membership, I really get uh, riled up and I really do all I can with the, my, my power to remedy that as quick as possible. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your book. Good luck with sales. I'm sure this story really touches people. So we appreciate you uh, taking the time with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you all. Have a great day. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. And, and that is the book. Let's just give the title one more time, Tanya. Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood by Mark Torres. That's right. Now, before we leave, we would like to remind you all of an event that is taking place tomorrow night. That's Thursday at 7 p.m. It's called Real People, Real Relief, the American Rescue Plan in Action with AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka and Secretary-Treasurer Liz Schuler. So that'll be live on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So check it out Thursday at 7 p.m. And thank you all for joining us for the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream. Our producers are Chris Garlock and Evan Papp, who is also engineer and editor. That was an excerpt from our March 24th, 2021 Labor Radio Podcast Network live stream. You can watch the full episode by visiting our website at laborradionetwork.org, and you can follow the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag LaborRadioPod. The live stream is co-produced with Chris Garlock of Union City Radio. And my name is Evan Papp of Empathy Media Lab, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which has grown to over 90 shows in five countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. Our social media guru is Harold Phillips of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, and our podcast weekly editors are Patrick Dixon of Labor History Today and Chris Bangert Drowns of WPFW 89.3. And remember, we all play a role in this working class struggle. Union solidarity forever.